All right, I want to uh, I want to tell you guys what a great privilege and honor it is for me to uh, be able to speak to you in this way. And I want to thank you for letting me do so, uh, especially about a subject that is so close to my heart and uh, the manner in which God has made himself so great to me. He's unveiled his faithfulness to be so enduring to me. And so I'm going to speak about prayer and uh, I'm going to come the long way around because what I'm going to try to do is answer what Rick and Dave have been telling you is to know your need for prayer, to know your need. So what I'm going to try to do is to show you your need for prayer. So going that, going that. Take me a second, so if it doesn't seem like we're talking about prayer, we'll get to it. So uh, to start things off, um, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you got your Bibles? Not, of course, it is always on the screen. There it is. Starts at uh, verse 17. I apologize, I, I have like a sinus or cold thing that's going on, so I may even possibly have to blow my nose in the middle of all this, but uh, we're going to strive through it. So, uh, verse 17 says, And he was setting out on his journey. This is Jesus. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So I want to start where this guy says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because right here, this guy reveals himself to be who he is. We call him the rich, young ruler. And by calling him a ruler, we are associating him with the ruling authority that presided over Israel under the Roman authority and worked to administrate Israel in context to the law of Moses. Right? And these men had developed an attitude concerning the law that what we call greatly legalistic. And so this guy has associated himself with being part of these guys. So let's talk about the law and legalism for a second. The law was given in two different facets. One half of the law was a set of sacrifices that were designed to pay homage to God through the atonement of sin. The second half of the law was a set of civil or, or social ordinances that was designed to regulate the culture of Israel, how they interacted with each other and how they did business with each other. And so the Bible teaches us that the law was given as a tutor to instruct us about our sin. Right? That means that the ordinances were given so that in doing what God said to be right, we might be able to identify in our hearts the sin that required atonement through the shedding of blood. Right? <coughs> it's like this. Uh, i use myself as an example. 
uh, when I am in a position to give to somebody something of value, most of the time it's, it's money that this happens. Uh, it's not always that I don't want to, but in the process of doing so, I always have to answer all, every question in my mind that goes through. I always have to think of every reason why I shouldn't, right? And, uh, but I mean, I'm just, I can be selfish sometimes. That's how it works. But that's exactly the point. In doing what God has told me to do, I find in order to do so, I must overcome in my heart the desire not to do it. Thus, the law is a tutor, right? In order, in the attempt to conform myself to the desire of, of God for me to be generous, I find I come into contact with my own desire to be selfish. And no matter how many times I overcome uh, the desire to be selfish and give to others, the desire to be selfish that I must overcome to, to do so teaches me about my unrighteousness and my need for God's righteousness. So uh, we call the uh, teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, we call them legalists because these men had become so preoccupied with doing what the law had said to do that they had forgotten the meaning of the law and the purpose for why it was given. And apart from the purpose of the law to identify sin in our hearts, we completely forget that we are sinners. And we begin to think that we can express the righteousness of God with our actions. And we have far less of a need for a righteous God, right? And Jesus calls the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hypocrites because apart from the practice of identifying sin in our hearts, we give ourselves completely over to sin. And we become very immoral, even in our pursuit to do what we believe to be good. So that's why Matthew 23, 23 says, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Right? So this rich young ruler has identified himself by the question he asks as being one of these guys. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to earn the right to have a claim upon all I want? You see, the very nature of the question presupposes his own selfishness and a complete unawareness of his own unrighteousness. So Jesus answers him this way. He says, first of all, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, right? Now, this is Jesus defending the honor of his father because that's what Jesus does. He honors his father. But in him saying this, we can, we can understand in context of the law working to identify sin that we know that when we overcome sin to do what is right, the right that we do is not righteousness because it still exists in the presence of the sin we must overcome to do it. Right? I want to say that again. It's very important. Uh, in overcoming sin, what the law tells us to do, in overcoming the sin in our hearts, to do what is right, the right that we do is not righteousness because it still exists in the presence of the sin we must overcome to do it. And true righteousness contains no unrighteousness. Purity, by definition of the word, contains no impurities. Right? So Jesus continues this way. Uh, he, uh, he takes them through five of the last six commandments. This uh, command, do not defraud, it's uh, not part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of the Mosaic Law. It's the way we, uh, they were uh, supposed to deal with each other in financial matters. 
But uh, along with that, he takes them through five of the last six commandments. Uh, and all these are the ones that uh, talk about the way we interact with each other. And so he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not steal. Honor your father and mother. Right? And so interestingly enough, he leaves out the last commandment about coveting. Right? And so this guy was able to say, well, all these things I've done from my youth. And so Jesus confronts the, confronts the man with his inability to conform to the last commandment about coveting in a different way. He says, one thing you lack. He says, go, sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then after that, come and follow me. And of course, this is what the man was not willing to do. As Jesus unveils the man's idolatry, not by asking him if he's a covetous man, but by offering the man his presence, which is the substance of everything that the man was looking for in exchange for all he owned, which was the substance of all the good that he thought he had. And given this decision, we, of course, know that the man walked away. And this is why it's so important not to think that we can do righteousness or be good. It's so important to allow what is written to reflect to us our unrighteousness and our need for God because righteousness and goodness is what we desire. It's what we're looking for. And so to think that we can do righteousness or to be good, when you think that, you will start to do for yourself in order to get for yourself. Because the law, like we said, it, apart from the law, we forget that we are sinners. And so in doing the righteousness, like this, like this guy who was so preoccupied with doing what he thought to be right because he thought he made, it made him good, he'd completely given himself over to covetousness. And so given the opportunity, he rejected the invitation to walk with the living God. So my first point is, David said I had to have points, so this is my first point, all right? In all that you do, in all that we do in the name of righteousness, if it does not first serve to lead you into the presence of him who is righteous, then all that you do is worthless. It will serve to destroy your relationship with Jesus Christ. And by in his presence, I mean before him in prayer. See, the law has an ability to teach us about righteousness through the negative of sin. That means the best that we can do is acknowledge our sin through obeying the command. But Jesus, he's the substance of the righteousness of the law. He is the ability to teach us about righteousness in a way that the law never could. And what does Jesus say? He says, forget all that you know about doing what is good, doing what is right. He said, forsake all that you have, all that you think you have that is good, that you've made habit to rely upon. He said, come to me. Learn from me. Set my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. It's like, uh, this is why the law brings condemnation, because all it does is unveil our, deserve, our deserving nature of punishment. It's why Jesus Christ is grace, life, light, and truth, right? Learning from the law as opposed to learning from Jesus is like looking at the ground and staring at Jesus' shadow and trying to imagine in your mind what Jesus looks like and what he may want from you or just coming into his presence, asking him, talking to him, submitting yourself before him because we learn from God by spending time 
with God. Not merely by reading about Him or coming to a building and listening to somebody speak about Him. Right? The Scriptures are meant for our instruction to be sure, but apart from devoting yourself to the presence of God, that begins with prayer. And the Scriptures are useless to you. All right? It's like looking into a, a self-portrait of a painting and by looking at that self-portrait uh, that a painter has drawn of himself, I now claim that I know the, know the painter personally. It's, it's absurd, right? We are no more able to learn who Jesus Christ is from what was written about him than the Pharisees were from the law that was given. But what was written about him was meant to lead us to him, submitted before him in prayer. All right? <clears throat> now I want to attack this, uh, the way that, Knowledge, the knowledge of righteousness, scripture has been given to us in order to lead us to him. So, Proverbs 12, 1. One of my favorite Proverbs. I love the Proverbs because it's not afraid to call us stupid. Right? Proverbs 12, 1. Solomon says, uh, He who loves knowledge loves instruction, but he who hates correction is stupid. Right? So, what is Solomon saying? He's saying, in order to have knowledge, we must be taught knowledge. And in order to be taught knowledge, we must first acknowledge that you don't have the knowledge that you need. It's like when I, if I wanted to learn how to play the guitar, I must first admit that I don't know how to play the guitar. Right? Because if I picked up a guitar without any context of knowing how to play, started banging it against the ground, and called that sound music, convinced myself that it was music, then I would never learn how to play music on an instrument like the guitar. Right? So we understand that there's a part of knowledge that also teaches us about the knowledge we don't have. Right? It's like learning math in school, where you learn how to count, and you learn addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, on upward until you begin to, begin to realize that with every one thing that you learn, it leads you to the next thing that you don't yet know. And all these things, they build on each other. You have to learn them in a certain way because one thing leads to the next. And when you become aware of this process, you begin to become aware by all the things that you learn, you begin to see all the things that you still have to learn. And through all the things that you know, you become vaguely aware of all these things that you don't know. Right? The knowledge of righteousness is the same way. Right? In the Bible, we're told of righteousness... And we are given some very primitive operations to work in its service. But if we do not first let the uh, if we do not first use the small amount of knowledge that we have to teach us about how much of it is so far beyond us, then we have missed the point of Scripture as it has been spoken to us. It's like if I were to go all day without eating, and I took took the time to eat just one little snack, all it would do is prove to me how hungry I really am. And so we Christians, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, right? Now, the guy who's stupid or the one who hates correction, this is not to be of low intelligence. It's to be unaware of the fundamental nature of knowledge to lead us out from ourselves and into something greater. Or in the context of the knowledge of righteousness, someone greater, Right? This is why the Pharisees could never understand what Jesus was saying. Because it's the very essence of self-righteousness to think oneself to be righteous. 
and therefore unable to perceive oneself to be wrong. And if you can't perceive yourself to be wrong, you will not accept correction, but neither will you seek instruction. Right? Self-righteousness is the special kind of sin that exists in a man when he becomes so satisfied with the knowledge that he has that he no longer sees the design of knowledge to lead him to the teacher. Right? All right. We engage the teacher in prayer. God says if we spend time with him, he will teach us what is good, what is righteous, of his righteousness. Now I want to take time to show you how prayer comes before and beneath every step of our salvation. Right? Our salvation is indivisible from the practice of seeking God's presence in prayer. Uh, turn to Luke 18. Starting at verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is Jesus speaking. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Turn one page over to Luke 16, starting at verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him, ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. All right? So what I want to point out here is that when we read that the tax collector went away justified, we are made to believe that he truly was justified. And when we read that the Pharisees justified themselves, we are made to believe that they were not truly justified, and rightly so. But Luke in both situations, uses the same Greek word that is translated justified, right? So before we get to that, we understand that what God did for the tax collector is the same thing that the Pharisees did for themselves, right? Because Luke uses the same word for justified. It's the same Greek word, and it's intended to communicate a justification that exists as a pretense, Right? This means that the substance of the justification given is not the evidence of the justification is no more attached to the person of the tax collector than it is to the person of the Pharisees. Right? This means that the tax collector had no more of a right to the claim of righteousness than the Pharisees who justified themselves. Right? And though the Pharisees had no authority 
to justify themselves and God justify the tax collector. My point is, is that they, uh, they both wore their justification like a mask or a costume that proclaimed them to be something that they were not, right? <clears throat> and though this pretense, this mask, be the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, or whether it be the borrowed wedding garments of the righteousness of Christ, right? Both men contained the same substance, which is fundamentally unrighteous, right? So when we read that the tax collector went away justified, we are not to read that he went away righteous, right? He remained just as unrighteous as when he got on his knees to God to beg for mercy, right? So my second point is, my question to you is, is that if it was this tax collector's knowledge of his unrighteousness that brought him to his knees to ask God for mercy, and in receiving mercy, he was not made, and being justified, he was not made righteous, but remained unrighteous, then what right does the justified man have in getting up off of his knees to pray to God for mercy? This is the point of the parable. Jesus is giving us the picture of the justified man. He's giving us the picture of the penitent man. He's telling us that to know that you are unrighteous is to know that you will always be unrighteous. Therefore, to know that you need mercy is to know that you will always need mercy. And to live in God's mercy is to be always on your knees in pursuit of it and thanksgiving for it because apart from it, you can do nothing. Right? The penitent man lives on prayer because he knows that it is only by God's mercy that he does not perish. Therefore, every moment, every relationship, every decision, every situation, every job application, anything, if it is to be pleasing to God, it must first be found and sought for in the presence of God's mercy. That is where we get the command to pray without ceasing, Right? This is not a command to abandon your life for prayer. It's a command to do everything in your life with prayer. For it was a prayer to, to God for mercy that found you favor with a holy God, then it is only going to be in recognition of that mercy that will be conformed to his goodness. That's why Paul says in Romans 12:1, he says we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. How do we do this? We do it in view of God's mercy. This is why devotion for us, devoting ourselves to God in prayer, in search of His righteousness, begins before your day begins. Because if we are to live for God, like Jesus tells us each day, not worrying about tomorrow, then we are to begin each day with a recognition and a view of God's mercy. Because we are unworthy sinners. We are unrighteous. And though we come to Jesus Christ with the heart of the tax collector, we remain having the moral value of the Pharisee to the extent that they are now both living in us. They're, they're warring against each other, right, inside of us. How much more are we in need of a prayer to God for mercy, right? Scripture speaks to us in a voice that presupposes a man's knowledge that he must live out his salvation in the vehicle of prayer, right? That's why you don't, 
You don't hear scripture saying, okay, now that you believe in Jesus Christ, now you have to pray. You don't hear it saying, you have to pray at these times or for these things. No, Paul says, pray faithfully and without ceasing, steadfastly with thanksgiving, right? Because prayer is to salvation what two plus two equals four is to math. Everything is built up from it. And apart from it, you're not going to learn anything else. Right. So. uh, Because we are unrighteous. In view of God's mercy. Because of the spirit he is now invested in us. Who yearns jealously for us. We seek to come out of the place from which God has called us. We have prayed to God for mercy. We seek to come out of the miry clay which he has drawn us. And we seek to walk toward the place to which he is calling us. Right? That's what scripture means when it says, come out from among them and be separate. This means two things in context to what we're talking about. It says, it means one, that we are to separate ourselves from the old man who lived in rebellion to God. Right? The sinful man of whom the Pharisee is a type who now still lives in our members and which is to control us through our members. And we are to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Ephesians describes this man as being created in the likeness of God, right? This is our physical response to God's spiritual work of sanctification. And it is our spiritual act of worship. When Moses and Jesus says that you are to love the Lord with all your, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is a big visual aspect of the mind and strength part of that command, right? Perseverance in obedience of mentally and physically attempting to conform yourself to the holy character of God, right? Uh, Paul tells us that we are to war on every account. With all of our efforts, all the ways in which we see ourselves fall short of the glory of God. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life because sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. This is straightforward Straightforward instruction. We take this word for word how it is written, right? But what does Paul also say? He says that your old self died with Christ, was crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin, right? We died with Christ so that we might be freed from sin. But freed from sin to what end? Right? It says, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Right? It hasn't been done away with yet. Right? It still exists. So we are to read that when we are freed from sin, we are to understand that we are freed from the power of sin and not yet the presence of sin in us. Right? The presence of sin still resides, but the power has been abolished. But what has the power been abolished to do? Is it to go out and do righteousness as if we are able to do the good that God would command us to do? No, absolutely not. Is it to go out and live whatever way we please, choosing to do whatever we want to do, not consulting 
uh, what God tells us about righteousness and expecting grace to conform our actions to the goodness of God? Certainly not, right? The power of God, uh, grace, the power of sin was abolished for one purpose only, and that is to offer yourselves to God, to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Grace gives you the privilege to come into the throne room of God and acknowledge him as your master. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you are saying that he is your master and you must address him. You must address him for instruction. You must address him for um, correction. You must address him for permission, for direction, for power to do his will. For if it was the power of God that destroyed sin, then we can only expect it to be the power of God that destroys the presence of of sin in us, right? This is what the war of the flesh and the spirit is all about. This is what Paul is talking to us about when he talks about the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? But in order to fight this war, we must read how he says each man seeks to move us because they seek to move us in two separate directions, right? The flesh lives inside of us, and it is our default. If we do nothing, we will be ruled by the flesh, right? It seeks to drive us. That's why you get the metaphor of the storm, that those apart from the wisdom of God will be tossed to and fro and driven about with every wind of doctrine, right? The flesh wants to drive you. It wants to have control over you. It wants to force you, but the spirit wants to lead you, wants to guide you, right? Like I said, in order to be controlled by the flesh, all you have to do is do nothing. And I'm not talking about action. I'm talking about devotion. Right? I'm talking about seeking God's presence. But if we are to be led by the Spirit, what does Paul say? how does Paul say that that happens? First, he says that the Spirit does not make us a slave again to fear. That means that the Spirit is not going to intimidate you into doing what it wants you to do. It's not going to force you. It's not going to rule your members as the sinful man rules your members. You have to acknowledge the Spirit. You have to answer the Spirit. You have to choose to be led by the Spirit. Right? So how do we answer the Spirit? Well, we do what the Spirit of sonship gives us the privilege to do. We come into the throne room of God and we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? We acknowledge Him as our Lord. We ask him for the help, the substance, the spirit that desires to lead us, to navigate us through the treacherous world and our treacherous members, right? If we don't do this, right, we will forget the mercy that he has had on us. We will forget that we are sinners. We will begin to believe that we can express the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we are not apart from the power of God, apart from devoting yourself to God's presence, no matter what your mouth claims, no matter what your actions seek to contrive for yourself, apart from the power of God that exists in devotion, we are no different from the rich young ruler. We're no different, and we are treacherous, destructive men apart from seeking the power of God, right? This 
leads me to my second point about come out from among us, and it will be my last one. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13, if you'd like to turn. It's one of my favorite verses. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All right, real quickly, Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, this one, yeah, yeah I'm going to start at 18, I told Jeff 20, but, uh, it says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer to consider ourselves citizens of this world but only passing through this world on our way to a better country we are citizens of heaven returning home right so this country is defined as better not because it contains mansions or streets of gold but it contains the presence it is defined by the presence of almighty God And therefore, we are to read the command to come out and be separate from the world as a command to draw near to the presence of God. And every exhortation that exists to separate ourselves from the presence of the world in action comes first with the exhortation to separate ourselves from the world in devotion. Because it is only through a relationship with God that first begins through prayer. It does not exist if it does not start through prayer, right? It is only through that that we can put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit and live life in God, which does not exist apart from His presence, right? If we think that we can do what only God has made us able to know, apart from His presence, apart from seeking Him for the power to do it, then we make ourselves no different from the Pharisees who thought that they could attend to the righteousness of God by committing themselves to the letter of the law, right? Because God has designed his power to be administered to you in a certain way, right? He does not just give it to you, and you certainly are not entitled to it, right? He gives you his spirit to be sure, right? But the spirit is the spirit of truth and is meant to lead you to the one who is true because God desires your presence much more than he desires your feeble works. 
The Bible says that our works are like filthy rags. He desires your presence because his presence defines our works. And his presence is found in our prayers. Right? That's why James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. you double-minded. This is us he's speaking to. He says, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Because if you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will lift you up. That's why David says, my heart says, your face I need to seek. Therefore, your face I'm going to seek. Right? Our sanctification, our life in God, the exorcism of the old man in us will not happen apart from seeking the face of God. That's why we are commanded to ask, seek, and knock. And if you do not have, it's because you do not ask. Therefore, if you do not ask, you cannot expect to have anything that God is prepared to give you because he wants to give you himself first and all things from that. That's why he tells you to seek his righteousness and his kingdom first. And if we seek him in this way, we can believe that all the rest will be added to us. Right? This is a promise of Jesus Christ. Right? And the promises were given so that when we obey Jesus Christ and count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we may have no fear when we do that. Because Jesus says the substance of our existence is not found in the abundance of our possessions, but in the abundance of the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. His promises are given so that we may abandon those things to seek him. Right? What does, uh, what does Peter say? He says, through his divine power, we've been given all things that pertain to what? Life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called you by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the promises, the promises are interwoven with obedience so that when we obey Jesus and abandon all the things that we have learned to rely upon in this world for all the many different fearful securities that exist as a part of our sinful nature, when we abandon those things for what Jesus Christ offers us, we may come to rest on the power of God and be upheld by the fulfillment of God's promises, right? The first and best and essence, I believe, of all the rest is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you, right? What is God's righteousness? What should we seek first beyond the physical substance? Well, Peter spells it out in the verse that we just talked about. He says, giving all diligence, add to your virtue, faith, add to your faith virtue, add to virtue knowledge, Add to knowledge, self-control. Add to self-control, perseverance. These all build on each other. Add to perseverance, godliness. Add to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. You have to learn them in a certain order. There's only one person who can teach you that. 
in the order that you need to learn them so you may do what you are called to do because it is love that it is righteousness. It is love that is the knowledge, the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And though it is his righteousness to have, if we seek him in this regard, then his love becomes ours to give. And therefore, we become the kingdom in this world who has a king, Jesus Christ. But what does he tell us? He says that first, you have to forsake all that you think you know about doing what is good. You have to forsake all that you own, all that you have come to rely upon, that you think you have that is good. You have to come to Jesus, learn from Jesus, spend time with Jesus, prostrate yourself before Jesus, submit yourself to Jesus. By grace, he is our master. Right? He says, set my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The power of your salvation exists in the presence of God. And the presence of God is found in your prayer.